Well, good morning and happy Father's Day. If you uh, have reproduced babies, you get a happy Father's Day. Uh, but to be celebrated and honored is to be an expression and example of the Heavenly Father. So if you're one of those, I honor you, I celebrate with you, and I thank you. Uh, fathers have hands calloused and strong enough to work hard and provide and produce things that we need, sometimes just things that we want, uh, but tender enough to hold when we need to cross a parking lot. Arms that are strong enough to wrestle when you're little and uh, soft enough to wrap around you when you crawl into your lap to watch some stupid kids movie. Uh, so all of the dads that have found that beautiful balance of when to be tender, uh, when to create an atmosphere of, of ultimate emotional safety, uh, and also when to challenge and when to press in and when to create conflict to be guides, uh, thank you. I have so many memories of, of, of what my dad did in, in each of those moments, and I could probably sit here and, and preach two sermons for the price of one, so make sure you get to the offering box afterwards. But. <laughs> Uh, and if you're one who maybe doesn't know your dad or, or you join the thousands and thousands of people uh, all over the world throughout all of history who, who has had a dad who is uh, much less than perfect, who hasn't expressed the love of God or, or who just wasn't involved in your life, uh, God speaks very specifically and declares himself a father and very uniquely and specifically says that he is a father to the fatherless. And so what man has... Uh, left lacking, God's grace promises to fill tenfold. And I think most of us in this room have tasted that, where we've had disappointment in people, disappointment in life, uh, but we get to see and watch how God uh, makes all things good. And so, happy Father's Day to y'all. Ready for the second sermon. <clears throat> we're going to be in Psalms 13, predominantly, and we're going to also use Psalms 42 as well as Psalms 55. Uh, the thing I, I really appreciate about uh, the book and the collection of Psalms is that it, it can often serve as a, as a template and a kind of an outline for us to follow in navigating things of life, how to relate to God the Father, and uh, it's also so relevant where we read Psalms and we read what the psalmists are experiencing emotionally. And we realize we're not the only ones who have had trials. We're not the only ones who have had heartache. We're not the only ones who have had victory. And so often it's an encouragement to me to read a psalm and realize, whoa, that's exactly what I feel. That's exactly what I'm going through. So today my desire is uh, for us to, to experience some of that and then look for guidance uh, in God's word. Look for guidance in his book that will help us navigate uh, life in a, in a healthy way and in a godly way. So Psalms 13, if you guys are willing, if you guys are able, could you stand? And most of these I will have uh, projected on the screen, uh, but if you want, it might not be a bad idea to, to kind of put a finger on Psalms 13, also 42 and 55, because like I say, we'll be going back and forth. But I will read this to you guys, and if you would just follow along. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. 
lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You may be seated. The psalm opens up with, I think, things that we can relate to. Simply honest expression before our God. You have a man who feels like God has forsaken him. He says, how long must I have sorrow in my heart? How long shall I see my enemy exult over me? He feels defeated. He begs, light up my eyes. Why? Because all I see is darkness. You ever been there? Lest I sleep the sleep of death, I feel like I could die, or times I just want to die. I am shaken. No confidence. You're rattled. We've all been there. We've all had these moments where we feel like God is distant. We feel like there's more bad than there's good. We feel like we just can't go on the way things are. We're sick and tired of being sick and tired. And the first encouragement that we get if we look at the Psalms is it's okay to express how you're feeling to God. It's okay to evaluate what you're feeling and just offer up to Him all that is inside of you. Psalms 42, we see something very similar. Verse 3 and 4, it says, My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me continually, where is your God? Your sorrow, your tears that are constant in seasons seem to declare God isn't there. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. This is a phrase my wife uses all the time when she's talking about expressing emotion is pour your soul out to God, pour your heart out to God. The Psalms are encouraging us to do that and giving us an example of of people who have done that. Psalms 55 starts very similar. It says, Give ear to my prayer. Hear my plea. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan. My heart is in anguish. Fear and trembling has come upon me. So looking at each of these psalms and, and many, many other psalms, we see this freedom to simply take what's inside us and express it to God. In fact, I'm not real comfortable with, with this word because I think it's insanely dangerous, but it even says to complain to God. Pour out your heart to God. Now, quick little difference. Complaining to God is very different than complaining against God. And so, if you look at these honest expressions, can you go to the next slide? So we need to be very careful how we complain. So in Psalms 55, 16, it says, I call to God. In Psalms 55, 22, it says we're, we're able and we're commanded to cast our burdens upon God. The New Testament uses real, real similar language as far as casting your burden upon the Lord. And so that's something that God invites us into, commands us to, delights in. But we need to be very careful when we start to make this slight change when our discouragement and our sorrows, not only are we just expressing how we feel to God, but all of a sudden, we're making declaration with our complaint that not just life stinks, but life stinks because God isn't good. We see the difference? 
unchecked discouragement opens our heart up to complaint. And habitual complaint opens our heart up to accusation against God. Now, if you're human, you've complained. But I think it's a very, very sneaky path that the enemy uses to get little complaints, little complaints about little things, about little things, and pretty soon we, we wear this as a, a habit. And we let each other get away with it, and sometimes we complain to each other and with each other, and we just continually feed it, and it seems so innocent. But where there is a habit of complaint, I believe there's a habit of anger. The two go hand in hand. And so we need to find and strike that balance, and hopefully this psalm will, will help us strike that balance between honest expression, raw expression of emotion to God, and complaining about everything and against how he has handled our life or how he's doing his job. And usually it doesn't just stay vertically, does it? Over time, I start complaining about how everyone else does things too. You must fight discouragement. You cannot get stuck in your discouragement. It's not wrong to feel discouraged, but it can be very dangerous to stay there. Is that your guys' experience? Or sometimes we try to avoid it, and if you live this life on this earth, you can't. And God doesn't condemn us. God doesn't shame us for feeling discouraged or for having questions or being unsure or having doubts, but when we stay there and when we just let that be the soil that we cultivate over and over and over, it's similar to complaining where pretty soon you see negativity where there is none. You lose the ability to see good. Maybe you've been here or certainly you have observed this in other people's lives where everything is wrong. Paul David Tripp says you start to see more things wrong than right. You see more darkness than light. You see more injustice than justice, more hate than love, more trouble than mercy. I'll tell you what, because there is darkness, isn't there? There's a lot of injustice. There is a lot of darkness. And it's easy, and our world would love to draw all the attention to those things. And it's really easy that that's all you start to see. And it's very good to recognize that and to acknowledge that and to understand in your heart something's wrong. Things are broken because I think God uses that as a motivator to pursue and, and build his kingdom. But when you stop seeing the light, when you stop seeing good, when you stop seeing hope, when you forget how to praise, uh, you lose a very, very dangerous spiritual battle in your heart and in your soul. You become bitter. You become angry. And over time, bitterness and anger, when it settles in long enough, leads to depression. Leads to ultimate discouragement. It's like a heavy blanket. Again, it's not just things in my life stink, but my life stinks because God is not good. Protect and check yourself when you make this pivot. And we have an entire culture making this pivot right now in the church where things aren't quite as they should be, agreed. But as soon as we start accusing God, we're on very, very dangerous ground. We all of a sudden have elevated ourselves above God and have declared, I will decide what's good. I will decide what's wrong. I will decide what's right. I will decide what's evil. 
you can see the difference between just pouring our heart out to God, being honest, and all of a sudden accusing God for mishandling this world. Paul David Tripp also, in his book called Suffering, he breaks down this idea of human nature to doubt. And really, you, you know this as well. It comes from your desire to understand things, your desire to know how things work. And so when we don't, we have a natural tendency to ask questions. We have a natural tendency to doubt. But there's a couple different kinds of doubt, as he puts it. He's, he talks about the doubt of wonder, which says, God, I, I wonder what you're up to. This, this doesn't make sense to me. Uh, how are you going to possibly use this? How is this going to be better? How is this for the good? I was just talking to a friend before the service, and we were discussing this. I don't understand how this is going to be to the good. A uh, friend believes it, but he can't wrap his mind around it. We've all been there, haven't we? We're trying to evaluate these things. That's okay. That's safe. I think Scripture invites us into asking those kinds of questions of God. It's very natural. But that's different than the doubt of judgment. Again, God, you aren't very good. God, this isn't right. You aren't right. You will never trust God if you're continually asking these questions because in your heart and in your mind, he isn't trustworthy. So if he's continually messed up, there's no way you're going to trust him. I believe there's two primary lies of Satan, and I've been thinking about the different names of Satan, and one of them is deceiver. That's one of the main ones. And you think about how he does this. Imagine a magician, magic, illusions. They make you observe things or feel things or see things that aren't real. They deceive you. The reality is the card's still there, but the deception is it's not. And this is one of the main ploys of Satan, is he doesn't ever change reality. He doesn't ever create. He just deceives us into thinking certain things are there that aren't, or certain things aren't there that are. And I think one of the main ways and messages that he communicates is that God is not with you. Not only is he not with you, but he has forsaken you, meaning... He's kind of made a choice to pull himself away from you. He is not for you. How many times, like the psalmist, have you wondered, God, where are you at in this? God, how come you seem to answer other people's prayers, but you don't seem to answer mine? Maybe God does care a little bit more about this person than me, because I see their blessing. Or he just seems distant, like he's... He, he's not involved. Satan will continually try to communicate these messages. Or maybe because of tons of variables, you believe he exists, you believe he's here, you believe he's around, and that makes you even more upset because you're not convinced that he's working on your behalf. Because you're probably like me. When things don't go my way, I get upset. And I tend to feel cheated. And so Satan is always working, always trying to show us in good circumstances and in bad that God is not there, he's forsaken you, he's not really for you. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. 
And again, we're not the first ones to feel this way. Psalm 13, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face? Why have I been singled out? Psalms 42, 9 and 10, why have you forgotten me? My, my, my emotions declare, where is your God? Psalm 55, hide not yourself from my plea. Another way of saying that, where are you? Answer me, because you seem silent. Because the noise of my enemy. You ever been there where the suffering and the struggle seems so loud that you can't seem to hear anything else? Your burden is taking all of your attention, occupying every thought, every conversation. We're not the first ones that have felt that way. 55.6 says, oh, that I would fly away forever. I would wander far away. Ever want to just escape? We've all been there. We're not the first. We won't be the last. But God has an answer. When suffering, you have to force yourself to pay attention to your private conversations, the ones that take place in your head. We're always talking to ourselves. Not always verbally, but your thoughts just go round and round and round and round, don't they? And unchecked, they will lead you to a very, very dangerous place of either despair or arrogance. And so scripture says things like, take every thought captive, set your mind, anchor your soul. Be careful of the private conversations in your head. Just draw them out, call them up. The enemy would love to keep those things hidden. The beauty is in the Psalms, again the template, we get this incredible pivot in the middle of so many Psalms and specifically in the middle of these three. Uh, Would you go to the next slide? There's this pivot, there's this moment that the emotions haven't changed for David or the other writers, but their mindset has. Psalms 13, 5 and 6 says, I'm feeling all this, yet I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Yahweh or the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I've trusted in his never-ending steadfast love. My heart rejoices in his salvation. I sing to him because he has dealt bountifully with me. How do you speak this way? when all of your emotions are screaming distant, forsaken, forgotten. A history with God. He draws upon the character of God, convinced that he is always loving and always good. He has put time in with God. My Aunt Marcy, first person I heard, she says, don't forget in the dark what you knew in the light. It's really easy, isn't it? Because our emotions are so loud. Time in with God, time in front of God, experiences with God carry you through those moments where things don't make sense or you don't feel his presence. But just like the magician, it doesn't make it true. It's still there. Psalms 42 gives us a great example. Again, it says, I felt forgotten. My tears continually say, where is my God? And in 42.4, he says, these things I will remember. 42.6 says, my soul's cast down, therefore, what do I do when my soul is cast down? Therefore, I will remember God. You have to draw upon who God is and his approach and your experience 
with him. You have to preach to yourself. Continually preach to yourself. And in order to know what to preach, you've got to spend time in his word. You've got to spend time under teaching. You've got to spend time communicating with people who know him. And the more you have that, the more ammunition you have against the enemy. You'll know what to say to yourself. A couple things. What do we preach? Next slide, please. Preach the presence of God. Preach hope in God. And praise God. We'll dissect a few of these um, psalms, but here's what I think. Heart, head, hands. So presence of God is, has a lot to do with our thought life. Remembering that God is with us. Declaring that to yourself. Then it talks about hoping in God. What are you actually putting faith in? What are you putting trust in? Your heart. You lead your heart to follow what you know is true even though it doesn't seem like it, even though your eyes are telling you something different and your tears are telling you something different. And then hands is the action and is the behavior. So oftentimes the battle starts right up here with the private conversation, the Satan throwing these things and we're musing on them. But I think the psalmist gives us an example to remind ourselves of the presence of God and then by an act of your will and faith to trust him. And then in that trust and in that faith, you do something about it. This is when James says, faith without works is not beneficial and is no faith. But faith always goes somewhere. Next slide. Goofy little drawing, but it's helpful. So this center cart is the coal cart, okay? And we get to dictate where we put that fuel. So a part of us, the first part of the Psalms, wants us to keep shoveling that into our feelings and keep meditating on seeming distance, things that I don't understand. God's mishandled my life. And if we continue to muse on that and talk about that and complain about that, we'll continue to throw shovel into that cart and that train will go follow our feelings. And pretty soon that which once you knew, you don't know anymore. Those things that you were sure of, you no longer are sure of. Because you've rehearsed the lie over and over and over. And now wherever your feelings go, you go. And so not only are you a victim of your circumstances, not only are you a slave of your circumstances, but you're a slave to other people. I say something that makes you feel bad, and all of a sudden it's true. A discouraged life, a hopeless life, a bitter life, an angry life, a depressed life. But in the Psalms, we get this picture of people who have the same feelings that we do, but they have chosen to fuel the other cart. They have chosen to put their faith in fact. Another word for fact is tr truth, right? They've chosen to pivot, to set their eyes not which the things that they see, not only on how they feel, but on what they know is true about God. So they have continued to place faith in and fuel that which is good and right and pure and holy. Psalms 55, 16 and 18, after this psalmist makes the pivot, he says, But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaints and moan. That's still there. But he hears my voice. Think of presence. 
He redeems my soul, truth, and hope. 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit his righteous to be moved. The same guy says, I feel shaken, but God won't allow me to be moved. 23, I will trust in you. So not only do we preach to ourselves, but we also praise God. Psalms 42, 5 says, Hope in God, I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. 42, 11, he repeats the same thing. Hope in God, I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The praise team earlier sang a song about praise being a weapon for us. And my experience is that is so true. And typically, in dark times and in hard times, it is the last thing you want to do, is to cultivate a heart of thanksgiving, to cultivate a heart of praise. And so there is, the Bible uses this word, a sacrifice of praise. It's something that costs you something. You lay aside your view of right and wrong. You lay aside your idea that you know best you sacrifice that, you kill that, and you begin to put your eyes on the Father and declare and lead your heart into worship, lead your heart into praise, lead your heart into thankfulness, regardless of how you feel. And my example is very soon, light does come to your eyes. Your soul is lifted up. Not always right away. But there's so many times we have to not only acknowledge God's presence, but praise him for who he is and praise him for what he's done at the very time you want to stop coming to church, at the very time you want to run from him. I was driving up here today, and right on the turn here towards church, there was two birds in the road on the other lane, right kind of by the yellow lines. And they were standing real close to each other, and one was just very still, and the other one was kind of pecking away. And it was just seconds I was driving by, and I thought, that's kind of weird. And as my car approached, one bird flew away, and the other one stayed there. So I thought, that's peculiar. And then a truck was coming the other way, which this, this bird was in danger. And it didn't move. And very, very quickly, I realized that bird can't fly. That bird's injured. And so, honestly, there was a little sorrow in my heart, that here you got this friend trying to take care of another, but when danger comes, bird flies away. Which is understandable, right? They're just animals. Presence was helpful until trouble came. Not so with God. So just the presence of Jesus, just the presence of God does a lot. But if it's not coupled with the love and the goodness of God, you're never sure when he's going to fly away. But different than that bird, when death was approaching, that bird flew away. The cross is our picture. When death was approaching, Christ was hit by the truck, so I wasn't. My sin called death to myself. My sin ushered and welcomed death to me. I chose to stand in the center of the road. And Christ's presence and Christ's goodness towards me 
said, I'll let you fly away and I'll take the hit. Remember what God has done for you. Remember the salvation of the Lord. Remember that he knows your name, that you have a father, that he sees each tear that falls. He calls you his own. Psalms 56, 9 says this, and this is what I'll end on. As we go through moments of heartache and pain, first we got two options. Just stay there and keep it buried or complain about it constantly and get stuck. Or we can express and pour our hearts out to God and begin to preach to ourselves. Be honest and make the pivot. Complain, but don't accuse God. Set your mind on the character and the goodness of God and all that he does for you, all that he has done for you, and all that he will do for you. And we, like the psalmist, can be real and honest, but always have hope. Always have solution. 56.9 says, This I know, that God is for me. This I know, that God is for me. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I thank you so much for the, the, the collection of psalms, for a real, honest admittance of how life is, the difficulties, the sorrows, just the emotion that's wrapped up in, in the poetry and the song and the writing. And you have made us emotional beings, and we don't have to apologize for that. But God, I thank you for the hope that goes beyond our feelings. I thank you for the surety of your character. I thank you for the surety of your love. I thank you that I don't just have to try to convince myself because I heard one time that God is for me. I thank you that, that there is a, a hill on this earth called Golgotha that you took the truck for me. That there's a tomb that's empty that declared for all eternity that you are for me and that you have declared victory over me. So I pray for all these listening that they would recognize and understand that it is okay to have sorrow, but they could take courage, that they could hope in the Lord, that they could offer a sacrifice of praise, and that our suffering wouldn't be evidence that God has forsaken us. Our suffering is simply evidence that we live in a broken world that needs redeemed, and you are in the business of redeeming. We love you and we praise you. Amen.